This morning, let me invite you to turn with me one more time to Revelation chapter 21. And our study through this last book of the Bible is quickly approaching its end after some 13 months or so, uh, going verse by verse through this book. Many of those um, sermons came during our midweek on Wednesday nights. And just over this summer, we've been in these last few chapters. In the last couple of weeks in particular, we've been here in this 21st chapter. And the last two chapters of the book of Revelation really are centered around the majesty and the glory of heaven, which is the hope of every believer. And so having come to these chapters and this wonderful subject of eternity to come, you know, it's important that we understand that we're not talking about something that is a figment of our imagination. Heaven is not some kind of pie in the sky when you die, uh, kind of an ocean. Uh, instead, we're talking about something that has tremendous implications for how we live our lives even now uh, in the present. And this truth of eternal life and this truth of the hope that we have in heaven, this should bring conviction and clarity to our lives and really give us proper perspective informing how we use our resources and our time. And very much the people of God ought to lay up treasures in heaven. And so that means that heaven needs to be at the forefront of our thinking. It doesn't need to be in the back of our minds. We don't only need to talk about heaven when we come to a funeral, but we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Colossians chapter 3 tells us that we are to set our affections on things above. We're to set our minds on the truth of heaven. And you think about many of the songs and the hymns that we sing, how they focus on heaven, reminding us that the world as it is now is not our home. And throughout the centuries of church history, believers have been loosely tied to earth and they've longed it for heaven and so they've written many wonderful songs that remind us and we need to be reminded on a regular basis that this world is indeed not our home. Even now in many places around the world where believers uh, are not as comfortable as we are here in the West, heaven is still a truth that's greatly anticipated. It's the anticipation of all the people of God, going all the way back even into the earliest days of redemptive history. The psalmist describes his anticipation for heaven in Psalm 23, when he talks about dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. Or Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire but you. And so the longing that we have for heaven as God's people, this is really a longing for God. And those that long for God will long for heaven. Nothing on earth I desire besides you. All of my desire is heavenward. There's a lot of us that can't say that because if we'd be honest with ourselves, we'd have to confess that the stuff of this life often is more pressing to us than eternity is. We live in a day of instant gratification, material comfort, and even within the church, if we're not careful, we can be very secular in our thinking. And there's nothing that demonstrates this more graphically 
than lack of interest in heaven. And so put it out of your mind that this truth of heaven is something that's irrelevant to your life here and now because it's very practical. It's the most practical thing that you can really pursue because it impacts everything else in your life as a believer. So in these closing chapters of Revelation, we've come to this wonderful subject of heaven. And my prayer is that these chapters will really rekindle a fire deep down within your soul uh, for the glory that awaits us in the future. And so we're going to read chapter 21 in its entirety. And in this passage of Scripture, we're given a marvelous preview of New Jerusalem, which is the heavenly city of God. So begin reading with me in verse number one. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the angels, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, And showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 apostles of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates... On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, 
which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who were written in the Lamb's book of life. In this wonderful chapter, we have described for us with great detail the new Jerusalem, which is the heavenly city of God. And so I want to speak from that subject this morning, New Jerusalem, the heavenly city. You know, since the earliest days of Old Testament history, men and women of faith have been looking and longing for this city. If we were to go back to Genesis chapter 11, we would read where Abraham was called by God to pack up his things. He'd been living comfortably there in a big city, Ur of the Chaldees. But God tells him to pick up stakes and move from Ur and go to a land that God would show him. And so Abraham became a pilgrim. He became a sojourner, a wayfaring stranger, content to dwell in a makeshift temporary dwelling. The writer of Hebrews actually writes about this in Hebrews 11 and says that it was by faith that Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he would receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now listen to this. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Several verses later in that same chapter, verse 16, there's this amazing truth revealed about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the patriarchs of the faith. The writer of Hebrews says they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so by faith, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs of the faith, they were looking forward to a city that had foundations. Not the kind of city that man builds. No, this is the city that God himself has built. The city that God himself has prepared for those who are his. That was true for them. It's also true for all of the children of God. Hebrews 13, verse 14 says that here we have no continuing city, 
but we seek the city which is to come. That means as comfortable as you may try to get in this life as a believer, you'll never get comfortable. You'll never be comfortable because we have no lasting city here. The very best that man has built with his hands in this fallen world is destined to come crashing down. But there is a city which endures. There is a city which continues. There is a city which should be the hope of every man, woman, and child of God, and it's this city that John describes for us with great detail here in Revelation 21. John gets a glimpse of this heavenly city, and he's writing to us about what he saw. Now, notice a few things from this chapter. Number one, notice with me how he sees uh, this heavenly city descending from heaven. So he notices the descent of the heavenly city, and he describes that for us in the first several verses. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. So he's, he's seeing a recreated universe. And in that recreated universe, he sees the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a radiant bride adorned for her husband. Now, heaven, when we look at what the Bible says about heaven, we frequently read that it's the place where God dwells. Uh, Isaiah 66, verse 1, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Jesus taught us to pray in this way, our Father who art in heaven. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 22 says, Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers, all having been subjected to him. I like how Wayne Grudem defines heaven. He says that it's the place where God most fully makes known his presence to bless. Now here's the thing, we know that, that God is everywhere present. His omnipresence means that he is everywhere at the same time. However, he especially manifests his presence to bless at certain places. And the greatest manifestation of God's presence to bless is seen here in heaven where he makes his glory known, where ten thousands upon ten thousands of angels serve him, heavenly creatures serve him, and where redeemed saints gather to worship him. And so when referring to where we go as believers when we die, we Christians talk about living with God in heaven forever. And that's most certainly true. And yet what the Bible says is far richer than that because the Bible teaches that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, an entirely renewed creation, and there we're going to live with Christ forever and ever in eternity. And this has been the plan of God from eternity past. Isaiah 65, verse 17, God says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, According to his promise, we are waiting for the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so the consistent message all throughout the scriptures is that God will one day create a new heaven and a new earth. And this new heaven and new earth, this is the place of our future and eternal home. And that's what John has given a glimpse of here as he's given this peek into eternity. 
where now he also is given this glimpse of the heavenly city, which really is the capital of the new heaven and the new earth. And so what will this new heaven and earth be like? Does it mean that God is going to replace the first heaven and earth with something totally new, recreated? Well, that seems to be the case based on what Scripture says. And Peter writes about this in 2 Peter chapter 3 when he talks about the time is coming in which these current heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will melt with fervent heat. But he says, according to his promise, we're looking for the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so both Peter and John use the same word in Greek, translated pass away. The old will pass away and the new will come. And God is going to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And in many ways, it will resemble the present one, but it will be vastly improved. In fact, it's amazing when you lay side by side the first two chapters of your Bible, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, with the last two chapters of your Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. And it's almost as if we've come full circle as redemptive history comes to a close. And the plan of God finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ is going to usher in, which is going to be our eternal home in this new heaven and this new earth and this new city called New Jerusalem. So notice a couple of things that this involves. Uh, First of all, this involves a prepared place. John sees this city descending, and this is a prepared city. This is a very literal, real, prepared place. This is not a state of mind that's being described. This is not merely figurative language that we find here. We have every reason to believe that what John sees points to a literal reality. Earth as we know it is a place that exists at a certain location in this space-time universe. Well, heaven also must be thought of as a place that is just as physical and just as material. Atheists have long assumed that Christians have merely imagined heaven and they've wanted to accuse us of being, you know, living in a fantasy land and that kind of thing. And so basically the rationale is, well, if it can't be proven scientifically, if you can't put it in a test tube, then it doesn't exist. And so that kind of thinking really is based upon this belief which says that reality consists only of that which is seen. But the person who would say that is exercising faith because that is very much a religion. And if I were to go back to what I said a moment ago about Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews says that if you don't have faith, you can't even begin to understand this current life. It's by faith that we understand that the things which are seen were made by that which is unseen. And so when we talk about these heavenly realities and what the apostle John is pointing us to here in this chapter, folks, we've got to see this through the eye of faith. We've got to trust in the Lord and trust in his word and that his word is authoritative on this subject of heaven. In fact, when Jesus ascended into heaven, the fact that he went to a very real place seems to be the entire point of of the narrative. It's something that he wanted his disciples to understand. 
You know, there in Acts chapter 1, the, the angels, uh, after the ascension of Jesus, they ask, they ask the disciples this question, why, why are you men of Galilee standing around just gazing up into heaven? Because this same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will also come again the very same way. So the idea is he's gone to a very real place. Stephen, somehow the portals of glory are opened up for Stephen just before he's, he's put to death there in Acts chapter 7. And the Bible says that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What is it that Stephen sees but this very real place that's being described with very real literal terms. He didn't see symbols of a state of existence. No, he saw a real place. His eyes were opened up to see a dimension of reality which God has hidden from us in this present age. And so heaven is very much a real place, even more real than our present earthly existence. In fact, this is what Jesus says in John 14 when he seeks to encourage his disciples and says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now listen, here's a place. In my Father's house are many mansions. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. He's not pointing us to some imaginary, uh, make-believe, fictitious, pie-in-the-sky world. No, it's a very real place, something that he emphasizes at least four times in those verses. So this is a prepared place. Now, notice something else, the descent of this holy city. Notice something else that's involved here. Uh, not only is it a, per, a, a very real prepared place, but John describes a permanent presence that's true of this place. What is it exactly that's the most important fact about the new heaven and the new earth and new Jerusalem? Well, John describes it for us there in verse number three when he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God dwelling with those made in his image. That's been the plan of God from, from the ages past. That's why he creates man to begin with. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, folks, heaven is going to be a wonderful place, not simply because of the environment of the city and not simply because of the aesthetics and the surroundings of the city, but heaven is going to be a wonderful place because it's going to be in this place that we're going to see God. We're going to look upon God. We're going to dwell with God, and God's going to dwell with us for all eternity. The dwelling place of God, literally the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. And three times that phrase, with them, is used here in the text. And folks, it's a wonderful comfort to our hearts. And by the way, this is true even when we die. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
our loved ones, when they die in Christ, we can say with confidence that they are with the Lord. And that's the promise that we're given in the Word. Jesus promised the dying thief in Luke 23, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, this day you will be with me in paradise. We tend to fixate on that word paradise in that text, but we ought to be more blown away by the fact that Jesus says today, you, an unworthy thief, you're going to be with me. Because that's what really makes heaven heaven. It's the fact that we're going to be with our Lord. This is why the apostle Paul said to live is Christ and to die is gain. You hear that? To live is Christ and to die, the world would say, is ultimate loss. Something to be feared. Something to be dreaded. No, to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it's gain because I'm in the presence of Christ in all of his fullness in heaven. So John sees this heavenly city descending from heaven to the new earth. It's a very prepared place. A permanent presence is described. And then he, there's a precious promise that he's given there. In verse number four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have all passed away. And the one seated on the throne says, Behold, I'm making all things new. So we're told something about what life in this new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem will be like. And really the only way it can be described to us is with negatives. You say, what do you mean? Well, in order for us to understand what we can't see or what we can't experience, it's to understand it by its difference from what we do experience. And that's how John is describing it for us. So there's this series of no mores which will demonstrate for us the difference between life in the new heavens and the new earth compared to what we know now in this fallen world. And so he's saying that old human experience is forever gone. It is no more. Verse four, he's going to wipe away, and here are the negatives, every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning will be no more. Crying will be no more. Pain will be no more, for the former things will have all passed away. So John is saying that it's not going to be like life as we know it here and now. No, it's going to be vastly different. And all of the things which are so much of a part of life in a fallen world, all of those negative features, all of those painful aspects of life, those things are going to be completely absent. And so here's what this means. There will never be a tear of grief shed in the new heaven and the new earth. There will be nothing painful in the new heaven and the new earth. No more loss, nothing sad, nothing disappointing, nothing unfulfilling, nothing lacking, nothing wrong, nothing unjust, nothing painful, nothing to cry about. Instead, it will all be joy and gladness, fulfillment, satisfaction, beauty, and rest. And the one who makes all things new, I like what one author has said, he's going to make every sad thing come untrue. That's what it means when the text says that our Savior is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. 
all of the bitter disappointments that you've experienced in life as a believer, the painful struggles that you've gone through as a believer, the hurts and the wounds that you carry as a believer. One day, all of that's going to be, those tears are going to be wiped away from your eyes and pain will be no more. You remember the song, Farther Along, We'll Know All About It? Farther Along, We'll Understand Why? Cheer up, my brother, and live in the sunshine. We'll understand it all by and by. Why? Because the Savior is going to wipe away every painful tear from our eyes, and we'll see things in his light. So this is the descent, then, of the heavenly city that John describes in the first eight verses. Now, notice the second thing, and it's the description of the heavenly city. I'll move through this rather quickly, but from verse 9 all the way through verse 21, there's this marvelous description of the new Jerusalem, which is the capital city of the new heaven and the new earth. So what you have here in this passage really is the most extensive revelation of our eternal home that we find anywhere in the Scriptures. This is the city that Jesus promised to prepare for his disciples. This is the city that Abraham and the patriarchs were looking forward to through the eyes of faith. And so the story of the Bible comes to a close right here in these last two chapters with this breathtaking description of New Jerusalem. How does John describe it? Well, first of all, he mentions something about its radiant majesty. In verse 10, his description of the city begins with this vivid imagery that just baffles the imagination. He tells us that he's taken by the Spirit uh, to a high mountain where he's shown this holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, and it fills the new earth. And so the description that's given here sort of implies that the, that the city has been designed and built and now it comes to be established on the new earth that God himself has made. This is God's city. This is a city that he's built for those who are his. And chief characteristic of this city is its holiness. Because notice that he says there in, in verse 10 that this is a holy city. So therein lies the secret of its radiant beauty. You know, you can travel the world and you can, you can go from city to city and, and, and look at all of the impressive cities that man has built with all of their skyscrapers and all of their infrastructure. I, th I think Denver, Colorado has one of the most beautiful skylines with the backdrop of the Rocky Mountains there. If you've ever been there, you know how beautiful that is. Or if you've ever flown into Chicago on a cold January morning and you've, you've seen the towering buildings of the city sort of reflecting there in the icy waters of Lake Michigan. Or New York City with the Empire State Building, the Statue of Liberty, the vast skyline of the city. But the thing is, no matter how impressive those cities may be, the best city that man has built still has an underside to its beauty. Because just below those skylines, you're going to find a corrupt city. You're going to find a crime-filled city, a polluted city. You're going to find a city that has morgues filled with death and hospitals filled with sickness and sewer systems filled with all kinds of filth and human waste, not to be graphic, but to just point out 
Don't be so captivated by the beauty of the skyline of the city that you forget man's city is imperfect. It can't be described as a holy city. That's not the city that's being described here, however, because John sees a holy city, a perfect city, a spotless city, a sinless city, a city with no jails, a city with no prisons, a city with no courtrooms, no funeral homes, no hospitals. There's no need for police in this city because there's no crime in this holy city. This is a holy city, one in which no lie will ever be uttered even in a hundred million years. This is a radiant, beautiful city. And then notice something else about this city. John describes the immense measurements of the city. Folks, this is a massive, massive city. Verse 12, John describes the walls and the gates of the city. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. The wall had 12 foundations on which were written the names of the apostles. Verse 15, uh, we, we read that the angel who speaks with John had a measuring rod with which to measure the city. And then the measurements that are recorded, these are remarkable. Verse 16 says the city lies four square, which means the length is the same as the width as well as the height. And by today's measurements, that means that the city of New Jerusalem would be about 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles high, which means that there's more than 2 million square miles on the first floor of the city alone. So basically, this city is the size of its own continent. David Jeremiah says it this way, if you compare the measurements of the city to the size of the United States, if you would measure from the Atlantic Ocean and westward, it would mean a city from the northern tip of Maine to the southern tip of Florida and from the shore of the Atlantic all the way to the state of Colorado. From the Pacific coast eastward, it would cover the United States as far as the Mississippi River with a line extending north through Chicago, continuing on the west coast of Lake Michigan all the way up to the Canadian border. Which means that the biggest city of man that man has ever built is not even a village compared to the, the new Jerusalem that God is preparing. This is amazing. And one further thing to, con uh, to consider is the fact that this city, is, it's, it's described as being a perfect cube, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles wide. And you know what I find interesting? If you go back to the Old Testament and when the tabernacle was designed and when the Holy of Holies was designed, Moses was told how the Holy of Holies was to be constructed. And did you know that the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle was a perfect cube? with the width and the length and the height being the same. So the Holy of Holies then is really a reflection of this eternal reality that John sees here in Revelation 21. So the idea is that this city, New Jerusalem, is one gigantic Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God in the sanctuary city of his new universe. And you and I call it home. Isn't that amazing? So the immense size of the city. Uh, what about the valuable materials of the city? You read through the rest of the chapter, 
and on into the first few verses of chapter 22, I mean, you can't help but be awestruck because the city is built with every sort of gem and precious stone imaginable, walls made of jasper, which is basically the equivalent of, of, of our, what we would call a diamond. Could you imagine how that would sparkle in the light of God's glory? The gates are made of pearl. Each individual gate, mind you, was made of one solid pearl. I want to ask this question. How big is the oyster? W.A. Criswell said of this in one of his sermons, uh, he said that there's a sermon in the fact that these gates are pearl because heaven is entered through suffering and travail, through redemption and blood, through the agony of the cross. A pearl is a jewel made by a little animal that's wounded. And without the wound, the pearl is never formed. Now think about that. The oyster receives an irritation or a wound from a grain of sand, and around that which has hurt the oyster, the oyster then builds a pearl. And so the pearl is the answer of the oyster to that which injured it. The pearl represents pain resulting in beauty, suffering crowned with glory. And so when we read of this symbol of the pearl eternally embedded in the doorways of heaven, folks, it ought to remind us that Christ's suffering had an eternal purpose and opened up heaven for us. So you can't even come into the gates of the city without being reminded of what the suffering of Jesus Christ has accomplished for those who are his. Wow. So walls of jasper, gates of pearl, the foundations of the city are of every precious stone. Streets paved with gold. The city itself made of gold. Valuable materials. And you know, so much of these things are the stuff we fight for, steel, the kind of stuff we want to lock up in a vault or a safe, but you see, it's just the building materials of heaven. I wonder sometimes if the angels look on with just such curiosity when we fight and when we covet gold. Why in the world do y'all want asphalt? Because that's basically what heaven's pavement Precious and beautiful, yes, but listen, nowhere near as valuable as the souls of people who will be there. What is it that matters to God? It's not the gold, the pearls, the jewels, the jasper. No, listen, it's the souls of people for which Christ suffered and bled for. I don't know about you, but I want people to be in heaven with me. I want to take as many people to heaven as I possibly can. One last thing, and I'll leave you with this. Uh, what about the dignity of the heavenly city? There in verse 22, John says that he sees no temple in the city because the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it because the glory of God gives it light. Its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So the dignity of the city. What's the significance of this, this city? Listen, here it is. What you find here is sure fulfillment of the plan of God. This is the plan of God fulfilled. 
And all of redemptive history has been about the plan of God to redeem a people for himself. That's what the whole message of the Bible is, folks. And so John shows us here in Revelation 21 how the plan of God is fulfilled, even though throughout the history of the world it's been attacked. It's been subverted by sin. Satan has tried his best to undermine this plan. But the plan of God involves a new heaven and a new earth and a heavenly city, one that's untainted, undefiled by sin. It's a completely new order. As God completely redeems humanity and God redeems that which is his by virtue of him being creator. He's not going to surrender one square inch to the enemy. You know that? He's not going to surrender one square inch of it to him. So what begins in a garden ends in a city. In fact, the way that the throne of God is described and the way that the center of the city is described as you get into chapter 22, it could very much be that the Garden of Eden itself is going to function like Central Park for New Jerusalem. And so we've come full circle, haven't we? This is sure fulfillment of the plan of God. And then something else, this is a bright future for the people of God. And John is very clear in what he writes here, that not everyone is going to be granted access to this city, but only those whose names have been recorded in the Lamb's book of life. That's what he says in verse 27. So if your name is recorded in the Lamb's book of life, if you've repented of your sin, and you've placed your faith and trust in Christ as your Savior, believing that he died and that he rose again, then your citizenship is in this heavenly city. And that's something that should fill you with joy and should lead you to live your life with joy. You can look ahead to all that the Savior has prepared for you, and it's the hope of heaven that enables us really to endure anything here in light of what we know is coming. And ultimately, this is our home forever in the presence of God. So if I could just leave you with this, when you think about heaven and all of its attractive beauty and the streets of gold and the gates of pearl and all of that. Be reminded that the most wonderful thing and the most glorious reality of New Jerusalem is God himself. And the fact that we're going to be in the presence of God for all of eternity. You can close your Bibles. I'm done. It was Seneca, Roman philosopher, who said that this life is really just a prelude to eternity. C.S. Lewis wrote about that in his Chronicles of Narnia. If you're familiar with that series of books, the last book is entitled The Last Battle. The children are in a terrible train wreck. They don't survive it, and they're immediately transported to Narnia. And they fear that they're going to be sent back to earth, but Aslan, which if you're familiar with the story, he's the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion. Aslan assures the children that they finally come home. And I love how C.S. Lewis ends the book. The dream is ended, and this is the morning, Aslan said. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I can't even begin to write them down. 
And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's not so bad, is it? Now maybe you can understand why the Apostle Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's stand for prayer this morning. Lord, with grateful hearts we bow. So thankful, Lord, that our hope is in Christ and our home is in this heavenly city, New Jerusalem. Our citizenship is in heaven. And God, I pray that by your grace, we understand that we're just pilgrims and strangers passing through. And Lord, that we would not seek to try to get comfortable or try to stockpile treasure for ourselves in this life. But Lord, may you broaden our horizon with this hope of future glory that's ours. And fill our hearts, oh God, with longing for you and longing for our forever home, the new Jerusalem, the beautiful, beautiful city of God. And Lord, I pray that we live to try to take as many people with us as we can, to share the gospel with our neighbors, to sacrificially give to missions and participate in the mission of God in the world, because that's why your church exists. And Lord, when we've got heaven at the forefront of our thinking, then we're going to be a mission-minded people. So Lord, take these truths. May you seal them up in our hearts and lives. For Christ's sake, amen.